Welcome to Snazzy Stories. Put some pepper in thy step and lend an ear to the terrific tales of the past. Welcome to Snazzy Stories. If you would like to keep the storytelling alive, please go to patreon.com slash stories and donate to my storytelling adventure. Also subscribe to Snazzy Stories on iTunes, Spotify, many other podcast apps, or go to snazzystories.com. The latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century was a time of unrest and turmoil in the United States. The American economy was relying more so on an industrialized society, and along with that came labor unions and the struggle for good working conditions. And one person who was in the middle of it all, giving hope to the American workers, was Mother Jones. Mary Harris was born in Ireland on May 1st, 1830. In her younger years, she saw British soldiers marching through the streets of her town with their bayonets raised with the heads of Irishmen stuck on them. Her grandfather was an Irish freedom fighter who was hanged and her father had to flee the country with his family in 1835. Mary grew up in Toronto, Ontario, and she went to public school. She became a teacher in Michigan, and after eight months, she moved to Chicago and began work as a dressmaker. She ended up moving to Memphis, Tennessee, and began working once again in teaching. In 1861, she met and married her husband, George E. Jones. He worked as an iron molder and he was a strong member of the Iron Molders Union. Mary and George began their family and had four children together. In 1867, tragedy struck their household. The yellow fever epidemic reached their household, and within one week, her husband and her four small children died, leaving her alone in her grief. She wore black dresses the rest of her life. Mary returned to Chicago, and she opened her own dressmaking shop, and some of her patrons were actually some of the wealthiest women in Chicago. However, that endeavor did not last long. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire burned her dress shop and her home to the ground. With nothing left, she took solace in the meetings of the Knights of Labor movement. One biographer believes that Mary's interest in the labor unions came from her time working as a dressmaker, Mary said, quote, Often while sewing for the lords and barons who lived in the magnificent houses on the Lakeshore Drive, I would look out of the plate glass windows and see the poor, shivering wretches, jobless and hungry, walking along the frozen lakefront. The contrast of their condition with that of the tropical comfort of the people for whom I sewed was painful to me. My employers seemed neither to notice nor to care. She continued her dressmaking trade for a couple of years after the fire, but she really didn't have a home, and she would travel here and there for work. But she ended up becoming extremely active in the labor movement throughout the United States. When people would ask where she lived, she would tell them, quote, well, wherever there is a fight, unquote. She would go to the labor camps and live with them in their tents and shanties or near the mills. Mary went from state to state, city to city, helping to organize and rally men, women, and children to fight for better wages, better working conditions, and better work hours. Though she stood just five feet tall, when she walked into rooms or onto stages, all sat up to listen. Her stature in the room became giantess. 
She went to Kansas City to help organize a group of unemployed men to march in Washington, D.C. to demand jobs. Mary went to Birmingham, Alabama, and organized black and white miners during the nationwide coal mining strike. She also spoke to the railway union at their convention in June of 1897, and this is where she gained the nickname of Mother. She would become Mother Jones to millions of working men and women across the country, specifically to the coal miners, whom she would often refer to as, quote, my boys, unquote. She went to Pittsburgh to help a nationwide coal mining strike. While there, she went into the coal fields to help rally more people to their cause. Mother Jones would assist in any instance, whether it be coal miners, textile workers, railway, or steel workers. She was always there to organize and rally the crowd with her fiery speeches. Mother Jones was also concerned not only with working conditions of men and women, but children as well. In Philadelphia, a strike began at the silk mills of 100,000 workers, including 16,000 children. They left their jobs demanding the work week be cut from 60 hours a week to 55 hours a week. In order to get some attention on the child labor issue, in 1903, Mother Jones took, with the consent of their parents, of course, an army of 100 working children to see President Roosevelt in his Long Island home to get his help with the child labor laws. Mother Jones wrote about this event in her autobiography. Quote, In the spring of 1903, I went to Kensington, Pennsylvania, where 75,000 textile workers were on strike. Of this number, at least 10,000 were little children. The workers were striking for more pay and shorter hours. Every day, little children came into union headquarters, some of their hands off, some with the thumb missing, some with their fingers off at the knuckle. These were souped things, round-shouldered and skinny. Many of them were not over 10 years of age, although the state law prohibited their working before they were 12 years of age. The law was poorly enforced, and the mothers of these children often swore falsely as to their children's age. In a single block in Kensington, 14 women, mothers of 22 children, all under 12, explained it was a question of starvation or perjury, that the fathers had been killed or maimed at the mines. I asked the newspaper men why they didn't publish the facts about child labor in Pennsylvania. They said they couldn't because the mill owners had stock in the papers. Well, I've got stock in these little children, said I, and I'll arrange a little publicity. We assembled a number of boys and girls one morning in Independence Park, and from there we arranged to parade with banners to the courthouse where we would hold a meeting. A great crowd gathered in the public square in front of the city hall. I put the little boys with their fingers off and hands crushed and maimed on a platform. I held up the mutilated hands and showed them to the crowd and made the statement that Philadelphia's mansions were built on the broken bones, the quivering hearts, and drooping heads of these children, that their little lives went out to make wealth for others, that neither state nor city officials paid any attention to these wrongs, that they did not care that these children were to be the future citizens of the nation. The officials of the city were standing in the open windows. 
I held the little ones of the mills high above the heads of the crowd and pointed to their puny arms and legs and hollow chests. They were light to lift. I called upon the millionaire manufacturers to cease their, their moral murders, and I cried to the officials in the open windows opposite, Someday the workers will take possession of your city hall, and when we do, no child will be sacrificed on the altar of profit. The officials quickly closed the windows as they had closed their eyes and hearts. The reporters quoted my statement that Philadelphia mansions were built on the broken bones and quivering hearts of the children. The Philadelphia papers and the New York papers got into a squabble with each other over the question. The universities discussed it. Preachers began talking. That was what I wanted, public attention on the subject of child labor. The matter quieted down for a while, and I concluded that people needed stirring up again. The Liberty Bell that a century ago rang out for the freedom against tyranny was touring the country, and crowds were coming to see it everywhere. That gave me an idea. These little children were striking for some of the freedom that childhood ought to have, and I decided that the children and I would go on a tour. I asked some of the parents if they would let me have their little boys and girls for a week or ten days, promising to bring them back safe and sound. They consented. A man named Sweeney was marshal for our army. A few men and women went with me to help with the children. They were on strike, and I thought they might as well have a little recreation. The children carried knapsacks on their backs, in which was a knife and fork, tin cup, and plate. We took along a wash boiler in which to cook the food on the road. One little fellow had a drum and another had a fife. That was our band. We carried banners that said, We want more schools and less hospitals. We want time to play. Prosperity is here. Where is ours? We started from Philadelphia where we held a great mass meeting. I decided to go with the children to see President Roosevelt to ask him to have Congress pass a law prohibiting the exploitation of childhood. I thought that President Roosevelt might see these male children and compare them with his own little ones who were spending the summer on the seashore at Oyster Bay. I thought too, out of politeness, we might call on J.P. Morgan in Wall Street who owned the mines where many of these children's fathers worked. The children were very happy, having plenty to eat, taking baths in the brooks and rivers every day. I thought when the strike is over and they go back to the mills, they will never have another holiday like this. All along the line of the march, the farmers drove out to meet us with wagon loads full of fruits and vegetables. Their wives brought the children clothes and money. The interurban trainmen would stop their trains and give us free rides. Marshall Sweeney and I would go ahead to the towns and arrange sleeping quarters for the children and secure meeting halls. As we marched on, it grew terribly hot. There was no rain, and the roads were heavy with dust. From time to time, we had to send some of the children back to their homes. They were too weak to stand the march. We were on the outskirts of New Trenton, New Jersey, cooking our lunch in the wash boiler when the conductor on the interurban car stopped and told us the police were coming down to notify us that we could not enter the town. There were mills in the town and the mill owners didn't like our coming. I said, all right, the police will be just in time for lunch. Sure enough, the police came and we invited them to dine with us. They looked at the little gathering of children with their tin plates and cups around the wash boiler. 
They just smiled and spoke kindly to the children and said nothing at all about not going into the city. We went in, held our meeting, and it was the wives of the police who took the little children and cared for them that night, sending them back in the morning with a nice lunch rolled up in paper napkins. Everywhere we had meetings, showing up with living children, the horrors of child labor. At one town, the mayor said we could not hold a meeting because he did not have sufficient police protection. These little children have never known any sort of protection, your honor, I said, and they are used to going without it. He let us have the meeting. One night in Princeton, New Jersey, we slept in a big cool barn on Grover Cleveland's great estate. The heat became intense. There was so much suffering in our ranks, for our little ones were not robust. The proprietor of the leading hotel sent for me. Mother, he said, order what you want and all you want for your army, and there's nothing to pay. I called on the mayor of Princeton and asked for permission to speak opposite the campus of the university. I said I wanted to speak on a higher education. The mayor gave me permission. A great crowd gathered, professors and students and the people, and I told them that the rich robbed these little children of any education of the lowest order, that they might send their sons and daughters to places of higher education, that they used the hands and feet of little children that they might buy automobiles for their wives and police dogs for their daughters to talk French to. I said the mill owners take the babies almost from the cradle, and I showed these professors' children in our army who could scarcely read or write because they were working 10 hours a day in the silk mills of Pennsylvania. Here's a textbook on economics, I said pointing to a little chap, James Ashworth, who was 10 years old and who was stooped over like an old man from carrying bundles of yarn that weighed 75 pounds. He gets $3 a week and his sister, who is 14, gets $6. They work in a carpet factory 10 hours a day while the children of the rich are getting their higher education. That night we camped on the banks of Stony Brook where years and years before the ragged Revolutionary Army camped, Washington's brave soldiers that made their fight for freedom. From Jersey City we marched to Hoboken. I sent a committee over to the New York Chief of Police, Epstein asking for permission to walk up 4th Avenue to Madison Square, where I wanted to hold a meeting. The chief refused and forbade our entrance into the city. I went over myself to New York and saw Mayor Seth Lowe. The mayor was most courteous, but he said he would have to support the police commissioner. I asked him what the reason was for refusing us entrance into the city, and he said that we were not citizens of New York. Oh, I think we will clear that up, Mr. Mayor, I said. Permit me to call your attention to an incident which took place in this nation just a year ago. A piece of rotten royalty came over here from Germany, called Prince Henry. The Congress of the United States voted $45,000 to fill that fellow's stomach three weeks and to entertain him. His Highness was getting $4 million dividends out of the blood of the workers in this country. Was he a citizen of the land? And it was reported, Mr. Mayor, that you and all of the officials of New York and the University Club entertained that chap. And I repeated, was he a citizen of New York? No, mother, said the mayor. He was not. And a Chinaman called Li Wu was also entertained by the officials of New York. Was he a citizen of New York? No, mother. He was not.
Did they ever create any wealth for our nation? No, mother, they did not, said he. Well, Mr. Mayor, these are the little citizens of the nation, and they also produce its wealth. Aren't we entitled to enter your city? Just wait, says he, and he called the commissioner of police over to his office. Well, finally they decided to let the army come in. We marched up 4th Avenue to Madison Square, and police officers, captains, sergeants, roundsmen, and reserves from the three precincts accompanied us. But the police would not let us hold a meeting in Madison Square. They insisted that the meeting be held in 20th Street. I pointed out to the captain that the single taxers were allowed to hold meetings in the square. Yes, he said, but they won't have 20 people, and you might have 20,000. We marched to 20th Street. I told an immense crowd of the horrors of child labor in the mills around the Anthracite region, and I showed them some of the children. I showed them Eddie Dumphy, a little fellow of 12 whose job it was to sit all day on a high stool, handing the right thread to another worker. Eleven hours a day he sat on that high stool with dangerous machinery all about him. All day long, winter and summer, spring and fall, for $3 a week. And then I showed them Gussie Rangnew, a little girl from whom all the childhood had gone. Her face was like an old woman's. Gussie packed stockings in a factory 11 hours a day for a few cents a day. We raised a lot of money for the strikers, and hundreds of friends offered their homes to the little ones while we were in the city. The next day, we went to Coney Island at the invitation of Mr. Bostick, who owned the Wild Animal Show. The children had a wonderful day, such as they had never had in all their lives. After the exhibition of the trained animals, Mr. Bostick let me speak to the audience. There was a backdrop to the tiny stage of the Roman Colosseum with the audience painted in and two Roman emperors down in front with their thumbs down. Right in front of the emperors were the empty iron cages of the animals. I put my little children in the cages and they clung to the iron bars while I talked. I told the crowd that the scene was typical of the aristocracy of employers with their thumbs down to the little ones of the mills and factories and people sitting dumbly by. We want President Roosevelt to hear the wail of the children who never have a chance to go to school but work 11 and 12 hour days in the textile mills of Pennsylvania. We weave the carpets that he and you walk upon and the lace curtains in your windows and the clothes of the people. Fifty years ago, there was a cry against slavery, and men gave up their lives to stop the selling of black children on the block. Today, the white child is sold for $2 a week to the manufacturers. Fifty years ago, the black babies were sold COD. Today, the white baby is sold on the installment plan. In Georgia, where children work day and night in the cotton mills, they have just passed a bill to protect songbirds. What about the little children from whom all song is gone? I shall ask the president in the name of aching hearts of these little ones that he emancipate them from slavery. I will tell the president that the prosperity he boasts of is the prosperity of the rich wrung from the poor and the helpless. The trouble is that no one in Washington cares. I saw our legislation in one hour pass three bills for the relief of the railway, but when labor cries for aid for the children, they will not listen. I asked a man in prison once how he happened to be there, and he said he had stolen a pair of shoes. I told him if he had stolen a railroad, he would be a United States senator.
We are told that every American boy has the chance of being president. I tell you that these little boys in the iron cages would sell their chance any day for good square meals and a chance to play. These little toilers, whom I have taken from the mills, deformed, dwarfed in body and soul, with nothing but toil before them, have never heard that they have a chance, a chance of every American male citizen to become president. You see, those monkeys in those cages over there, I pointed to a side cage. The professors are trying to teach them to talk. The monkeys are too wise, for they fear that the manufacturer would buy them for slaves in their factories. I saw a stylishly dressed young man down in front of the audience. Several times he grinned. I stopped speaking and pointed to him and said, Stop your smiling, young man. Leave this place. Go home and beg the mother who bore you in pain, as the mothers of these little children bore them. Go home and beg her to give you brains and a heart. He rose and slunk out, followed by the eyes of the children in the cage. The people sat stone still, and out in the rear, a lion roared. The next day, we left Coney Island for Manhattan Beach to visit Senator Platt, who had made an appointment to see me at 9 o'clock in the morning. The children got stuck in the sandbanks, and I had a time cleaning the sand off the littlest ones. So we started to walk on the railroad track. I was told it was private property and we had to get off. Finally, a saloon keeper showed us the shortcut into the sacred grounds of the hotel, and suddenly the army appeared in the lobby. The little fellow played, hell, hell, the gang's all here, on their fifes and drums. And Senator Platt, when he saw the little army, ran away through the back door to New York. I asked the manager if he would give the children breakfast and charge it up to the senator as we had an invitation to breakfast that morning with him. He gave us a private room, and he gave those children such a breakfast as they had never had in all their lives. I had breakfast, too, and a reporter from one of the Hearst papers, and I charged it all up to Senator Platt. We marched down to Oyster Bay when the president refused to see us, and he would not answer my letters. But our march had done its work. We had drawn the attention of the nation to the crime of child labor. And while the strike of the textile workers in Kensington was lost, and the children were driven back to work, not long afterward, the Pennsylvania legislature passed a child labor law that sent thousands of children home from the mills and kept thousands of others from entering the factory until they were 14 years of age. Unquote. After Mother Jones's children's crusade, she continued to help with the labor unions. She went to West Virginia to help the coal workers in their strike between 1912 and 1913. Mother Jones led a group of miners' children on a march through the streets of Charleston. And then on February 12, 1913, she led another protest and was arrested. A military court convicted her based on their belief that she was conspiring to commit murder. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison. But on May 8, 1913, a new governor, Governor Hatfield, pardoned Mother Jones. She was 83 years old. She then traveled to Colorado to participate in the miners' strike there. And while staying on mine company property, she was thrown out many times. But each time, she made her way back. Then she was arrested twice. The first time, she was put in the Mount San Rafael Hospital for two months, and her second arrest was for 23 days in a county jail with terrible conditions. 
After that, in 1915 and 1916, she traveled to New York to be a part of the garment workers' strike and the streetcar workers' strikes and the steel workers' strikes in Pittsburgh in 1919. Mother Jones's last public appearance was on her 100th birthday. Mother Jones's last public appearance was on her 100th birthday, May 1, 1930, in Maryland. And on November 30, 1930, she died in Silver Spring, Maryland. She is buried in the Union Miners Cemetery in Illinois. Mary Harris became a voice to thousands of Americans, men, women, and children. And because of her voice, she was labeled as, quote, the most dangerous woman in America, unquote. But through her activism, she was able to give many Americans a better life. However, she didn't classify herself as a humanitarian. She claimed herself as, quote, I'm not a humanitarian. I'm a hellraiser, unquote. Thank you for listening to Snazzy Stories. Come back again where everyone has a story.